Well, good morning, everyone. Let me add my welcome to David's. Uh, Do keep your Bibles open at Luke chapter 3 and 4. It'll be very helpful. We'll be spending our time mostly there. And uh, some of the things that I'll get you to cast your eye on won't actually come up on the screen. Now, if you need someone to do a job for you, uh, you make sure they've got the right qualifications, don't you? Uh, As I look around, there's enough wisdom in this room to know uh, we can highly recommend it. Uh, the internet is littered with examples of jobs that weren't done right because the people who were asked to do them clearly weren't qualified. Uh, Like this one, Uh, this next one, see if you can see what's going on here, and this one, which is sort of triggering after a year of rain. Uh, Now, While these ones are good for a laugh, uh, they can easily be fixed. Uh, But it can be far more serious, can't it? Uh, Mistakes in buildings or aeroplanes or caring for people put lives at risk. And clearly, Luke, when he was writing his gospel, he saw how important it was for Theophilus, he was first writing to, and for us today, that we be certain that Jesus was qualified to be our saviour that we have that confidence, come what may. Now, as I speak of a saviour, it's worth saying the need to be saved is, is, while it's a given in Luke's gospel, it's clear there as well. And I don't think I'm ever going to forget uh, Dave's picture of the first two chapters of Luke from a few weeks ago, unfolding like a Disney musical where everyone seems to be breaking into song. Uh, But in those songs, the importance of a saviour and salvation is so clear. In chapter 1, verse 47, Mary says her spirit rejoices in God, my saviour. In chapter 1, verse 69 and 71 and 77, Zechariah in his song speaks of the coming salvation. In chapter 2, verse 11, words that you probably remember from Christmas time, the angel says to the shepherds, today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And Simeon in chapter 2, verse 30 sings, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations. Read through chapters 1 to 3 again for yourself and see how many more times you can find it, because I haven't listed them all. Luke is clearly convinced that salvation is our great need, that left to our desires to rule ourselves to our sin, uh, it will only end in judgment, that the message about Jesus is of life and death importance, and that God himself sees it with that importance. And like the Bible as a whole, Luke wants us to see how great is the need and how God wonderfully meets it. And so as we're coming to Luke chapter 3 from verse 21 today and verse 4 to verse 13, we're zeroing in on how Jesus himself meets that need. And what we see is he is qualified for the job Like no other, he is the son of God. 
as we read this passage, it shows us we can be confident that our salvation will be done well, given his qualifications, will be done right and will be life-changing. And we're going to look at it in three parts. The first, verse 21 and 22, where Jesus is confirmed as qualified. Verse 23 to 38, where Jesus is connected to Adam as qualified. And chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, where Jesus is proven as qualified. Verse 21 to 22, first, Jesus is confirmed as qualified. You may remember from last week how John the Baptist was Jesus' forerunner. He was like the advance team to get everyone ready. And he did it by preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, He was calling people back to God to rely on his mercy. Well, when we come to chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus himself comes out to where John is baptising to be baptised. But what happens when he does is extraordinary. Reading from verse 21, when all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now, have you ever asked someone to, you know, refer a a tradesman to you? Uh, Or perhaps you've uh, called on referees uh, that someone's listed in their resume. In fact, I just did that a few months ago with Ingrid and Chloe joining us in our staff team. And the goal, of course, is to hear from someone who knows whether the person is up for the job. Well, how about this reference check? then. Uh, At Jesus' baptism and like no other, uh, these two things are witnessed as Jesus prays. The first, the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus in bodily form. The second, the voice speaking from heaven. Now you can draw a direct line from the long history of the Old Testament to both of these things. In the first place, and this was God's way before Jesus' resurrection from the dead, Uh, God would send his spirit upon key figures he'd chosen to serve his purposes, Uh, like the prophets of old and kings and most noteworthy, King David himself. Where the spirit enabled these people uh, to fulfil the role God had given them and by being present with them confirmed that they were given the role by God. The same is true here of Jesus. But what about the voice? Uh, We're not told in Luke who or how many heard the voice. Was it just Jesus or Jesus and John the Baptist or everyone who was there? We don't know. But the voice picks up two extraordinary promises of God from long before. You are my son comes from Psalm 2. It's a psalm about God's king or the Messiah or the Christ and in it while the world rages against this king, God himself gives this endorsement and he says these very words, you are my son. What he's saying is 
He is the heir who will surely rule over all that is God's. And he's not talking about a son who's born to him, but one who will receive everything that is his. As the voice speaks from heaven, he announces, Jesus is that heir, the son of God, the one given all the promises and authority that belong to God himself. Now, and just to be clear here, uh, this speaking about the Son of God doesn't in itself reveal that Jesus is God himself yet. That will unfold as Luke goes on. But King David had been called God's son uh, and Israel had been called God's son. And so here in the first place, it's not about Jesus being, but his role that he's called God's son. Having said that, let's jump to the second part of what's said. With you, I am well pleased. And this harks back to uh, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 42, verse 1, and how across the next 20 chapters of Isaiah, God promised a servant, his servant, a servant who would come and suffer in the place of God's people in order to provide comfort and hope to his people. Now, before this, before these words were spoken from heaven, no one had ever made the connection that this voice makes here. You can't be a mighty and powerful king and suffer. Surely the second would deny the first. And so that's not how people believe the world works. It's not how Israel believed God works. And yet here is God confirming both come together in this one man, Jesus, the Son of God. Before we move on, I, I wonder if another question came up for you as we heard verse 21 read uh, why is it that Jesus gets baptised, a baptism of repentance, if he doesn't have anything to repent of? Anyone wondering that? A couple of you? Uh, you? You might think, well, then maybe he does have sin he needs to repent of. Uh, but it's also worthwhile to think what might be another reason. And really another reason does present itself and the next two parts of our passage today are only going to firm that up. Jesus isn't being baptised here for any sin he's done but he's being baptised as a person to identify with us. What he shows is he's willing to stand with us, with the people he'll ultimately suffer for to save us as a human, with humanity, and so points even here to the greater intersection he will have with our sin when he suffers upon the cross and takes the penalty of sin so we might be guilt-free. Now, having touched just now on Jesus' humanity, uh, let's go to verses 23 to 38 which shows this in spades, where we see Jesus is connected to Adam as qualified. 
Now, we looked at lists of descendants like this one a few weeks ago, actually, when we were in Genesis 1 to 11, where uh, you can go back through our Bible talks that are online if you'd like to listen to it again. Uh, We even read this passage, uh, and so I thought uh, I wouldn't ask the readers to read it again because they might start throwing stones at me, uh, you know, with all those different names and things. Uh, So that's the reason why we didn't read it today. Not the stones, but that we read it a couple of weeks ago. Luke and the other Bible writers, they don't include these lists or genealogies, as they're called, out of a, a sort of cursory interest. They're included to show us something significant. Interestingly, uh, this one goes the opposite way to most others. It starts with Jesus and works back in time. Uh, but what do you notice as it progresses? Uh, the first thing to notice is that Jesus was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. Now, we know because Luke's told us how Jesus was conceived, but most people at the time of Jesus' baptism didn't know. But at the same time, it's clear that Jesus' legal lineage, even if if it wasn't a blood lineage, traces back in a way that is hugely significant to his qualifications to succeed in what he's come to do. We won't look at the whole list of names in detail now, but what about these key highlights along the way? Uh, Verse 31, Jesus is a descendant of David, son of Jesse. He's a descendant of God's anointed king, of the king who in 2 Samuel 7, God promised would have a descendant who would rule on his throne forever. Then go further back. As a descendant of David, he's also a descendant of Abraham, verse 34, the one through whom God had promised to bless not just Israel, but all nations. And as one last stop, verse 38, Jesus is the son of Adam, the son of God. Human like us in every way. What an extraordinary kindness of God. Knowing what we know now, that Jesus was himself God, like the Father, like the Spirit, Incidentally, did you notice at the baptism how all three were present and active at the same time? How wonderful that God the Son, that he would humble himself to be made like us. Why is that so important? Why couldn't there be another way? Why this qualification? Well, that leads us into chapter 4 from verse 1, where what takes place between Jesus and the devil shows us Jesus alone is the one human who can save us, where Jesus is proven as qualified. As the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus at his baptism, so he's active here. Luke mentions him twice in 4 verse 1. In fact, you'll see him at work throughout this gospel. But if we're to understand what's important here, your ears need to prick up at the location here. Now, what was the location? 
Everyone's feeling shy. The wilderness. That's what you said, wasn't it? Yeah, excellent. Uh, What's significant about the wilderness? Where has the wilderness come up before in God's unfolding history of salvation? Well, it's, it's in the early days of Israel, isn't it? After God rescued them from Egypt as he was leading them to the promised land. The very time, in fact, that Psalm 95 that we heard read to us uh, reflects back on. Where what was God's goal for them at that time, at the time in the wilderness? Well, Moses reminds the people at the end of that time as they stood on the edge of the promised land. Deuteronomy 8 verse 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness for these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Israel was tested and failed the test. Their hearts were sinful. They did not keep God's commands. But before we look down through our noses at them, remember we would have been no different. Sinners like them, sure, they had a a unique place in God's plans, but uh, are as much representatives of uh, us all. Given the same opportunity, we would have shown the same colours. And here is Jesus. And so it's no coincidence that he's led out into the wilderness, that he spends 40 days reminiscent of those 40 years and where God allows the devil to test Jesus. How do Israel and Jesus compare? Is Jesus the true son of God that Israel failed to be? As we heard it read, you would have noticed there were three temptations. Each follows a similar pattern. Uh, The devil says, if this is true... Then he says, then do this, but each time Jesus refuses to take the bait. The first one is there in verse 3. Having not eaten, Jesus would clearly be hungry. And what does the devil suggest? Verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And what he's saying is, if you have the authority of the son of God, use it. Use it to meet your own and immediate needs. We'll come back to Jesus' response in a moment. The second temptation begins in verse 5. The devil takes Jesus to a high high place and shows him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. Then he says, these are mine to give and I'll give them to you if you worship me. Now obviously there's no high place high enough that you can see all the kingdoms of the world. There's something extraordinary allows the kingdoms of the world to be seen uh, before Jesus in an instant. But there's a sense in which the devil, in what he says and what he offers, in his inimitable way, which is mixing the truth with lies, he's half right. He is described in the Bible as having limited authority, but it is, of course, authority under God but when it comes down to it what's he doing here he's inviting Jesus to take the easy road 
to come into the kingdom which God the Father has already promised but take a different path from the one set before him, to abandon the way of the cross. That is the devil's offer. At the expense of faithfulness to God, at the expense of achieving salvation for us at all. I wonder as you heard these temptations read, whether you noticed the similarities uh, here in Luke 4 with our own temptation. As in Jesus' first temptation to use what's entrusted to us to our own ends and serving our own felt needs rather than living in humble dependence on the one who actually meets our needs. And then how common is the second when we're tempted to choose another way, an easier way, or at least seemingly, to conduct our thoughts and decisions and lives. And yet what always comes of that? It may seem better in the short term, but there is always a great cost in the medium to long term, in obedience, in faithfulness, even placing our very salvation at risk. The third temptation begins at verse 9. Standing on the highest point of the temple, a fall from which would certainly bring serious injury, if not death, but really at the heart and most public place of all Israel, where he would be sure to be seen. And the devil quotes the psalmist, quotes Psalm 91 to Jesus. Isn't that extraordinary? The devil knows the word of God and he quotes it to Jesus and invites him to show his qualifications to all who would see by putting his heavenly father to the test. Now, I said we'd come back to Jesus' response in each case. Did you notice how he begins each time? Did you notice it? In verse 4, Jesus answered, it is written. In verse 8, Jesus answered, it is written. And in verse 12, Jesus answered, it is said, written down in this case too. And in each case, in each of these three temptations, Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6 twice and Deuteronomy 8 as well, where he is guided by the word of God to enable his obedience to the Father. Where remember Deuteronomy 8 verse 2, after 40 years in the wilderness? Well, now look at what comes next. We've highlighted it in verse 3. God says, he humbled you. Uh, sorry, Moses says, God humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And here is Jesus living those words out where Israel reflected the heart of humanity, the heart of sin from which we need to be rescued, Jesus does the opposite. He does not use what's entrusted to him for his own selfish desires. 
He trusts his heavenly father to provide the good things he's promised rather than relying on himself to achieve them. And he doesn't put his heavenly father to the test, but rather allows the father to test him. And it's in this way that Jesus has the victory over the devil in his temptations. He knows the mind of the Father and is obedient to him, living by the word of God and shows us that he is the Son of God, the Son of God who through his death and resurrection, which from this point is yet to come, will have the ultimate victory over the devil and his lies. Now, I'm denied about whether to take you uh, to a part of Hebrews that we read at the end of last year together, which really captures again uh, what we've seen here. Uh, In the end, I decided to let uh, what Luke's saying in his gospel wash over us first, but the writer of Hebrews focuses on the very same things uh, that Luke does here. Have a listen And see if you can see how what unfolds in Luke is captured by Hebrews. How what we witnessed before Jesus' death recorded by Luke is focused after Jesus' death in Hebrews. And so what both have to say about the certainty of our salvation. Hebrews 2 from verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood... He, Jesus, too, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We may be certain that Jesus is qualified to save each of us because it's not only his death in death that he saves us but through his life. Life lived in humble obedience to his father like no other person before him. He lived a life in our place so that by his death in our place and taking judgment in our place, his sacrifice would be worthy to give us new life. Now, what does that demand of us? Well, we'd be mistaken to think that the temptation of Jesus is a trumpet call to try harder, to pull ourselves, as it were, up by our bootstraps and work at being more faithful to God. On the contrary, it actually sounds a clear note that we ourselves cannot do that that only Jesus could do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Without Jesus, as with Israel, so with us. Left to our own devices, when our hearts are tested, we are found wanting. 
but as the true Son of God. Jesus uniquely. He has passed through the time of testing. He has suffered in order that our suffering may be brought to an end. And God's word today invites us, challenges us, implores us to experience and live under this rescue that he has won. By trusting Jesus and all that he has done on our behalf. When we do that, we too will be sons and daughters through the Son of God as we share in all the benefits being united to him bring. And when we do that, we may have certainty, the confident hope that what is still promised to us will be ours and seen in all its glory. For while others, while others may call Jesus' qualifications into question or may mock the very need for their rescue, God's word speaks to every one of us who have ears to hear of Jesus' victory over sin and death and judgment. And of this we may be certain. Praise God for that. I'll lead us in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, thank you that again today you have shown us by your word your wonderful purposes and plans, uh, Jesus' great humility that he should become one of us, that he should identify with us, that he should identify with our sin in order that in his life and death and rising again, he may save us. Grant us the confidence that your word offers, Heavenly Father. May we remember it and grow in understanding it and live by it, by your spirit at work in us, that Jesus will always be before our eyes as our certain saviour. We pray this in his mighty name. Amen.